0: Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shivani.
1: I'm Nick, and we are very excited to have Professor Steve Kotkin joining us here today. Professor Steve Kotkin is the John P. Berkland Professor in History and International Affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School and the History Department of Princeton University, where he has taught since 1989. He is also a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. At Princeton, he teaches courses on modern authoritarianism, global history since the 1850s, and the Soviet Empire. He has won Princeton's highest awards for both undergraduate and graduate teaching. He served as vice dean of the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, member and then chair of the editorial board at Princeton University Press, director of the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies, member of the editorial committee of the journal World Politics and director of the program in Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Professor.
2: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: So one of the questions we we like to begin our podcast um, are asking about this concept of inflection points or sort of pivots in your life, be it your personal or professional, where you realize a change need to be made. Um, So can you share a couple of those inflection points with us?
2: Sure, I was young and made a lot of mistakes. (laughs) And mistakes can sometimes be called inflection points.
0: They can, indeed.
2: My father worked in an embroidery factory as the night manager. And I went to work with him when I was a tween and then a teenager every weekend. And this is what I saw working life was like. As a result, not only my parents, but I myself became committed to getting an education I'm trying to achieve something in life. Mm -hmm. And I'm the first person in my family, fourth generation American, the first person to have gone to college.
0: That's incredible.
2: And then, of course, I went on to get a PhD. Mm -hmm. So my parents put a lot into me in that way. I didn't get into any of the schools I wanted to get into. I was rejected from all but my safe school. Which turned out to be a good choice. It was the University of Rochester, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is on the bo- up, up, upstate New York on the border with Canada. And I had a wonderful education there, but I had no idea where how I would end up there because I went as a pre med, was very successful in organic chemistry. I had the highest grade, the highest average in organic chemistry, but in the hospital on a molecular biology field work trip, I fainted in the operating room. Oh, no. <laughs> First, I threw up, oh, and then I fainted in my throw up. Oh, dear. <laughs> That's how my medical career ended. Oh, dear. <laughs> and so I then switched to English and eventually got a BA in British poetry. Mm. Mm-hmm. And as you know, I wrote my senior thesis on John Milton. Mm-hmm. However, when I spoke to my advisor in the English department who was assigned to me, who was the professor of British Romantic Poetry, which of course is Coleridge and Wordsworth and Byron, he said to me, you know, it's eight courses in English and it's four courses in an allied field. And I said, oh, I didn't know that. And then I thought for a second, I said, well, you know, I have a lot of math. (laughs) I did math right up through... Topology, which was m- much higher than regular college math, mm-hmm. he looked at me and he said, "Math is not an allied field." <laughs> and I said, "What are you talking about? It's like poetry." He shook his head no. <laughs> he said, "You have to take history classes." Mm. And the next semester, I took three history classes because of his instruction. The history classes were spectacular,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and. A little bit later, I found myself in graduate school at Berkeley, trying to get a PhD in history. That's incredible. So that was quite an inflection point, but I don't think I <laughs> foresaw that.
0: No, absolutely not. Well, well I mean, you—you've uh, definitely done something where I think more—more more so, my generation is—is is a bit, I'd say, timid or afraid to do, which is really commit to those pivots um, and kind of readjust their their mentality and. Realize that bottom line, it's okay to pursue a passion of years as a career. Because I think much more so than now, even at a liberal arts school as incredible as Claremont McKenna is, uh, there's definitely this understated reality where it's you follow these series of steps and then you get to choose what you want to do. Um, and this is five to ten years down the line after graduation. So w- what advice would you give you know, folks my age um, in really committing to the fact that pursue what you love?
2: You know, it's a privilege to be at a fantastic college like Claremont McKenna. Mm -hmm. It's really an unbelievable place. I've been here for two days now, and my eyes continue to pop out at the opportunities that are here. So I envy you. I envy you and all the undergraduates here. The physical plant, all of that is wonderful too. But the attention of the core faculty to the students and the opportunities that arise from that. I can't imagine not taking full advantage of everything on offer here. Absolutely. It's like an unbelievable, gigantic candy store, (laughs) intellectually, intellectual candy store. The problem is not you. The problem is the incentive mechanisms for taking risks. Undergraduates feel they cannot take a risk because they'll be punished. Their GPA will suffer their career will be sidetracked. As a result of which, people try to make safer choices. Mm -hmm. Oh, take a class that's really hard? Maybe, but then what happens to my GPA? Right. Take a class outside my comfort zone about something I'm curious about but don't know much about? Oh, I'll never survive in that class. Mm -hmm. As a result of which, my career will be ruined. Mm -hmm. So what we've done is we've created this system where we have on offer unbelievable array of choices and then the incentives are not to go for it, not to try those choices because of fear of career and GPA and everything else that you know. This is crazy. Once again, this is not the student's fault. They didn't create this system. They live under it, however. Mm. So if I were in charge which, of course, is never going to happen, <laughs> so everyone can never calm down, everyone funny. can be calm. <laughs> this is only a thought experiment. If I were in charge, I would create incentives for experimenting and making mm. mistakes. Right. Mm. Because it turns out every time I made a mistake, I actually learned something. Yeah. absolutely. And every time I didn't take a chance or, or risk something, I learned nothing. Mm. But how can we get to a point where you are rewarded for taking the chances, for getting out of your comfort zone. Is it only about lowering or raising your GPA, or is there some other way that we can measure success and failure? This is a hard question. It's not an easy one. If it were easy, it would have been solved already. Fair. That's right. Nonetheless, despite the disincentives, my advice to students your age is experiment, take risks, do things that are unobvious mm-hmm. and deal with the consequences. You guys have no idea what my SAT scores are. <laughs> no. You have no idea what my GPA is. Right. All you know. Is that I'm a professor at Princeton University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution Incredi- at Stanford.
1: that's what you know, professor.
2: That's what right. you know, but Absolutely. you don't actually know what my transcript looks like, do you? And
1: nobody really cares. No later one on, does in at life. this point? Yeah.
2: Would anybody ask yeah. me for a transcript? No. <laughs> right, and so it turns out that it's about your experiences. Mm-hmm. It's about the horizons you have and how wide they are. It's about the stuff you've done, even if it didn't work, the stuff you've tried. That's who you are. And when you go out into the world, that's the equipment you have to succeed with. And all of that is available right here, right outside your dorm rooms. It's just you have to not be afraid. Absolutely. It's easy to say. It's just hard to do. <laughs> but when you do it, it turns out. You feel the power of taking risks, intelligent risks, experimenting, gaining experiences. You know, life is about three things. Financial capital, and everybody is very focused on that. Mm -hmm. Who wants to live in poverty unless you have your parents' credit card? Right. In which case you're not very worried. Financial capital is significant, but it's only a means to an end. It's not really or shouldn't really be an end in itself. And you don't need as much as you think you need in order to live a quality life. Right. Mm-hmm. Besides financial capital, there's intellectual capital, which is what's between your ears? What are you learning? How are you challenging yourself? What things that you weren't exposed to yesterday mm-hmm. have you now discovered today? Where can your curiosity take you, especially when you don't agree, especially when the ideas don't seem like they should be ideas you like? Right. Intellectual capital is also crucially important, even more important than financial capital, ultimately, to your success in life. And so you got to keep making deposits in that bank called intellectual capital. And you got to take those bio classes and you got to take those Mm -hmm. data and statistics classes and you got to take those government and policy classes and you got to take those art and creative classes because all of that is on offer and all of that is extremely valuable. The final piece is social capital Mm -hmm. and social capital is now understood more and more to be critical to success. And that's not who you know in the opportunistic sense. But your ability to succeed in teams, to be plunked down in a new environment, Mm -hmm. and to meet people, get to know them, and benefit from that new familiarity. Social capital is an incredible skill, and you also have to make deposits in the bank of social capital. So if you look at financial capital, intellectual capital, and social capital, it's intellectual and social that are the really big ones. Mm -hmm. And that's where your career success comes from. That's where the financial capital actually ultimately comes from. And it's also where your happiness comes from. And achieving happiness is no easy thing.
0: Fair. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: Well, I think it's interesting just how you have a joint background in both humanities and the sciences. And something I've noticed here is that uh, you're also – History professor, is that in our society today? There's a huge emphasis on STEM education, um, and even in the humanities, I think history often takes a backseat to courses like international affairs and in government because those are usually seen as having more direct lines to employment than history. Usually, I, I'm a dual history major myself, so they ask, "Oh, so you're going to become a history professor one day?" Because that's all. <laughs> they see it as being good for. So I'm wondering if you could speak to uh, specifically maybe the value of a history education and and how that's affected your worldview and how that can be used by
2: kind of normal people. So all of education, all the disciplines, Mm -hmm. everything you could potentially do is about thinking. Mm -hmm. It's about figuring out what the question is, because that's the really hard part. And then once you have the good question, figuring out what the possible answers are, mm-hmm. and developing a method to get you to a good answer, right? That's the definition of what education is. Mm-hmm.
0: Sounds like the D- scientific method to me. <laughs>
2: there's sociology, <laughs> yeah. right? There's political science. Mm-hmm. There's economics. There's anthropology, but biology, physics, chemistry, and we could go on down mm-hmm. the list. Right. Thinking. Intelligently, thinking critically, thinking in a way that you can pose a question that's valuable Mm -hmm. and get an answer that's evidence-based and defendable. That's what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So history can help Mm -hmm. in developing those critical skills. It's not the only thing that can help, obviously, uh, but it's one of the powerful tools Mm -hmm. that you can put in your toolkit. History is a way of thinking. It's a way of analyzing. It's a way of posing questions. And it's a way of developing empirical evidence to get these defendable answers. History is not merely or primarily a body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's a way of looking at the world. When I go to Washington, which is not very frequently, (laughs) I have never served in government. It's very honorable to serve in government. Many of my students serve in government. And over the years, I've stayed in touch with them. One of the things that happens when I go to Washington is they ask me about history. All the time, a problem comes up. What to do about China? What to do about Russia? And the questions always turn into, what did we previously do? Mm -hmm. What happened in the past? How was this attacked or solved before? Did this problem come up before and in what forms? And it turns out that just about all policy, just about all the things that are involved in things like government, history is absolutely necessary. Now, you think, okay, that maybe is true for government, but what Mm -hmm. about other spheres? What about other areas? Mm -hmm. Is history valuable? And once again, it's a way of thinking and a way of looking at the world. History teaches you, that you cannot predict the future, but you know the present will change because it never lasts. Mm -hmm. It always does. And it changes in surprising, that is to say, unexpected ways, actions full of unintended consequences. It all looks predictable only after the fact. We have to be careful not to take away the surprise and the unintended consequences, mm-hmm. the things that are unforeseen. Sure, we have to explain how they happen, but explanation is not inevitability. This is true in any endeavor, and history can help mm-hmm. that way of thinking mm-hmm. across all the disciplines.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it, it seems like with with anything, especially history, there's a risk that is run in, in terms of staying too within that context or sort of limiting your parameters, limiting your your ability to, to look outside of the, the issue that you're facing um, is constrained if you are too rooted in history. So how what, what is the perfect balance that can be struck in terms of learning from the past, um, making sure that you set that framework? Because you're, you're right, history does change quite rapidly, um, but is a valuable tool to, to use in analyzing any sort of situational conflict, um, but also being vigilant to the fact that not everything that occurs presently was rooted in the past?
2: You know, it depends what it's for. Okay. What are the goals? What do you want to achieve? In other words, do you want to, for example, get people to be patriotic? If you want them to be patriotic, you need to teach them a sort of civics lesson. Right. You need to teach Mm -hmm. them a positive story. (laughs) something they can identify with, some things in the past that relate to them now and that would be useful going forward. But if your goal is a critical stance, if you don't like what's going on in the present, if you want to change what's going on in the present, then you would rifle the past to look at things that happened before that might have been better or might be different from what we've got now. Because that's a lesson that things can change, as we said, but Mm -hmm. also that things can go in a different direction Mm -hmm. in a direction you prefer. So this tension between affirmation, a kind of patriotism, civics lesson, giving a positive story, which is extremely valuable in all cultures, affirmation and criticism or a critical stance on the other side, right? History serves both of those purposes. And so you need to be understanding what it is that your goal is. If you feel that the current situation is unfair, unjust, shouldn't stand, then you look at the past and you get inspiration of people who tried to change things and succeeded, who fought for the goals that you identify with. And so those are the people from the past that you would surface. Absolutely. However, if... You feel that criticism goes too far sometimes, that people have good intentions, but they overturn things and it gets worse, for example. Then maybe you would be more cautious and you would look to people who warned about hasty change or the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Right. Right? So all of those are fair game. It does depend on what your goals are.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we, unfortunately, we are nearing the end of our time with you, Professor. Um, so we'd like to end on this this question, and I think you spoke to this incredibly eloquently um, in in terms of the second answer that you gave. But the question of success is, is often brought up with folks my age and, and quite uh, years before in, in terms of defining success for yourself, but also making sure that, you know, you are definitely contributing to society. Um, and so I wanted to ask what your personal definition of success is and how you would advise students, um, both college students and, and students of all ages on, and how to define success, success, excuse me, for themselves.
2: It takes a while. I don't necessarily think the, now the way I did when I was younger, my priorities have changed, my understanding of the world has changed. And my understanding of what constitutes success in my own life has changed. That's not because I'm smarter now (laughs) and I was really stupid then. It could very well be that I'm not so smart now either uh, compared to when I was young. So my answer is don't be so hard on yourself to come up with answers too quickly. Mm -hmm. Don't necessarily make choices based upon what you expect others or others are saying that you should do. It's important to listen to other people and get good advice, but don't try to be other than yourself to please other people. That's not the definition Mm -hmm. of success for sure. And in the end, you yourself get to define what success looks like if you're a strong person. Yes, parents are concerned, rightly so, about how you turn out. And no matter what, however, they will still be your parents and still love you. Mm. So you try to please them only up to a point. You have to be yourself. And as I said, you have to take some intelligent risks, expand your experiences. It's a cliche. All of this is a cliche. But sometimes cliche, you know, there's a truth to them.
1: That's absolutely true. There's a reason why it's a cliche. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly.
2: Well, unfortunately, I think that's all the
1: time we have. Thank you for joining us again, Professor. Um, And to all of our listeners out there, stay hungry. Thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure.